This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. Your time is your greatest currency, make no mistake, and this fact of life does not go unnoticed by the creators on who you spend your time. So thank you for spending your time listening and learning along with me on this podcast. Though spans exist between some episodes along the way, please know that I'm always working and researching and writing to produce quality content for us all. Yes, me included. It's one of Kurt Vonnegut's eight rules for writing. In fact, choose a topic you enjoy. So I'm along for the same ride you are. You're just seeing the amalgamation of my research is all. Please note that the best growth tool for podcasts like this one is word of mouth. Podcast still in its infancy as a truly powerful medium is wholly dependent on the listener to help market itself and spread its name widely. If you believe in what's being said and strived for here, please consider pushing this out to all corners of your social media, as well as leaving five-star reviews, multiple even, on whatever podcast service you choose. So, sincerely, thank you very much. Let's get to it, though. We're turning a major corner for the podcast on this episode, in addition to the last one, I should say. So buckle up. Today's episode, episode 98, is entitled The Longest Shadow. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. So speaking of Kurt Vonnegut... An Indiana native, by the way, and coincidentally my absolute favorite author of all time, has eight rules for writing that he used to teach at the Iowa Writers Workshop at the University of Iowa. They're all great, but one has always popped out at me. He writes, give your reader as much information as possible as soon as possible. To heck with suspense. Readers should have such complete understanding of what's going on, where, and why that they could finish the story themselves should cockroaches eat the last few pages, end quote. Well, speaking of records written a thousand years ago, the whole cockroach scenario isn't too far-fetched, actually. This rule, though, has always rubbed a lot of people, writers especially, the wrong way for decades. And it's not like it's a new rule, I suppose. Even the Greeks knew the value of Vonnegut's rule. Their choruses always started the show with a prophecy, right? So allow the chorus of Fortune's Wheel podcast to proclaim at the outset of this episode, William the Conqueror dies today. There you go. Well, now it's up to me, according to Vonnegut, the storyteller, to take you all from the founding of Cardiff and Newcastle to the death of William by the end of the episode, right? And I mean, it's about time, wouldn't you say? We've been chest deep into the Norman conquest of England for the better part of a year now. No, really. Looking back, you'll notice the episode El Cid Part 5 Valencia was published July 6th, 2022. By July 28th, 2022, I published the first episode for the conquest entitled An English Catastrophe. From this recording, that's about 11 months. What's more is that an English catastrophe was episode 72. We're on episode 98 right now. I honestly can't believe it. I seek only to tell the best story I can give, uh, given the time and the resources I have, and the Norman Conquest of England is now sitting at 26 episodes. Well, then again, I think to myself, well, Of course, it's 26 episodes long. It's arguably the most important overhaul of a nation in history, or at least the one with the farthest and longest reaching impact on world history. What William accomplished quite literally changed history, the entire course of history, actually. And today we still have the same ruling family, 1,000 years later and counting. So I guess in a From a different perspective, 26 episodes really isn't enough, is it? But alas, it might be all that I have in me. But all things, good and bad, must come to an end, yeah? It's time we move on and share the medieval spotlight with others. But let's try to wrap this wholly remarkable life up properly, shall we? 
Here's another Vonnegut-inspired spoiler, then. Today, we see the death of William the Conqueror, as I said. But we're also in for one of the most unique funerals in history, too. Buckle up. So the year is now 1081, and William and his family seem to be in a fairly happy, happy place once again. Matilda had all her boys back at her side. William Rufus was healing nicely from his wounds at the Battle of Giberoy, and Robert has proven his worth by subduing Scotland bloodlessly. Famed historian Frank Barlow, in his book William Rufus, credits the Abingdon Chronicle by saying, quote, the king was entirely satisfied with what Robert's expedition had achieved and rewarded all who had taken part. End quote. The royal family seemed unstoppable once again. And as Barlow points out, quote, There is no reason to doubt that at least the elder sons accompanied their father in the army he took through South Wales to St. David's. End quote. The family was so close that, while in England... Robert had re-established his relationship with his uncle, Bishop Odo of Bayeux, who was probably still counting his coins King John style wearing his fake crown. Remember, Odo was fresh off his murderous raid a year or so earlier in the north, the one that Robert Curthose was forced to go clean up, along with putting Scotland back in its place. Well, you have to, you've probably already picked up on the fact that Robert Curthose, although on friendly terms with the old man, was a, wasn't exactly a daddy's boy like William Rufus was. No, Robert found his father figures in his uncles, both Odo and his maternal uncle, Robert the Frisian. So Robert probably used this time in the early 1080s to spend some quality time with Uncle Odo. Now having said that, this next part might make more sense. See, Odo wasn't some gluttonous madman riding the coattails of his far more famous half-brother. Okay, well, yes, he was those things, but I call into question the madman word. Odo had aspirations, just like William, but Odo's weren't of the royal type. Odo had what he saw as far bigger aspirations. Currently, and we'll get into this on another series of the podcast very soon, though, I haven't decided whether it's going to be a Patreon-only series or a public one yet. Stay tuned on that. But currently, there are major shifts happening down in Rome. The 1070s were a tumultuous time between the Pope, his Italian allies, his Norman frenemies, and the German kings. At the moment, one of history's most impactful and scandalous popes was sitting in the papal seat, Pope Gregory VII. Suffice it to say that Gregory had politicianed his way into that fancy hat, so it got, many, it got many others thinking, well, if this guy can do it, why can't I? And enter Odo of Bayou. Now, admittedly, that's merely an accusation. No one knows for sure if those were his true aspirations, but there are some pretty base-level pieces of evidence that may support such a theory, that Odo was after the papacy. Well, firstly, Odo had used the conquest to amass quite a fortune, albeit one largely hidden from the public eye, until Archbishop Lanfranc, ever the do-gooder, exposed him in court and forced William's hand to once and for all put a stop to Odo's horrific and criminal treatment of the native English landowners and peasants. Either way, Odo still came out of it a very, very rich man. Second... Odo was continuing to amass wealth, as shown by his recent raid into Northumbria, which proved to do nothing but fill his pockets and piss off the north again. These raids could also be seen as furthering his military experience, you know, should it ever need to be used. Odo was drunk with power, it seems, by the early 1080s, and really had been for quite some time, but it all came to a head in 1082, when even his brother, the king, couldn't turn a blind eye. See, William, seemingly out of nowhere, ordered Odo's arrest and imprisonment in Winchester. Barlow writes, quote, It was believed that the warlike bishop was raising an army in England from among the king's vassals with the intention of intervening in Italy and perhaps 
making himself pope. End quote. Other chronicles decades later listed other reasons for Odo's arrest, but they all mainly focused on either, as Morris writes, quote, usurping the throne of England or Odo's oppressive behavior as England's regent, end quote. Either way, Odo was imprisoned in 1082. England went from relative peace and stability to the king arresting his own brother, the second most powerful man in the kingdom. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicles records it this way, quote, Finally, his own brother he did not spare. His name was Odo. He was a powerful bishop in Normandy, and Bayou was his episcopal see. He was the foremost man in England after the king. He had an earldom in England and was master of the land when the king was in Normandy. William put him in prison, end quote. But where our eyes need to be is not necessarily on the records or William or even Odo. Rather, our eyes need to be on Odo's beloved nephew, Robert Curthose. Where William failed Robert, Odo apparently did not. The two were thick as thieves. How would this affect Robert is the question we need to be asking. Now, the accusation against Odo about his possible aspirations of becoming Pope, the hard way, my personal opinion is that it does hold a little water, actually. The situation as mentioned surrounding Italy and the papacy and its relationship with the German king was precarious at best, and Odo was certainly ambitious and not afraid to go after what he wanted. In addition, according to Orderic Vitalis, with his winnings from England, that is to say, from William's own pockets, remember all money, all land, everything under the feudal system was the king's. See, Odo already bought a residence in Rome. A palace, in fact. In Morris's words, he, quote, decorated it sumptuously and secured the support of several leading Roman families by scattering lavish gifts, end quote. He's laying some groundwork down in Rome already. William of Malmesbury adds that Odo had sent pilgrims to Rome laden with letters seeking support and bragging about his successes. Now, Mark Morris lays it out nicely here. He writes, quote, But what may have seemed a logical career move to Odo appeared otherwise to his elder half-brother. William was far from being a staunch supporter of Gregory VII, end quote. And here's a quick context for you. Uh, based on that. So in 1066, William, remember, sought the support of the Pope, which he received in the form of a papal banner. Pope Gregory VII was merely Cardinal Hildebrand at the time. But Hildebrand was clearly a huge fan of William's impending invasion and was a main player in convincing said Pope, earlier Pope, to send the banner. So all in all, William and Hildebrand two of the biggest influencers in the 11th century Europe, if not the two biggest, arguably, began their relationship off on the right foot. However, as Morris said, something happened to change that once Hildebrand became Pope Gregory VII. Now, Morris continues, quote, But latterly, their friendship had been dented by the Pope's attempt to call in his debt by asserting that England was a papal fief for which William owed homage, a claim that the king had naturally rejected. Gregory had also fallen out with Lanfranc over the latter's repeated refusal to visit him in Rome, even to the extent of threatening to suspend the archbishop from office. Yet despite these tensions, there had been no serious rift. End quote. So tension did exist between England and Rome in the 1080s, but it wasn't a serious problem, it sounded like. Hildebrand slash Pope Gregory VII, whatever you call him, we know a lot about him today because he wrote a lot. Like, letters exist written in his own hand, which is remarkable. And to be honest, I've already started researching and writing about his life and papacy, and he might be one of the more interesting people I've come across in history. He was fiery. He was passionate. And he was also behind just about every major ecclesiastic decision between his arrival in Rome with his friend Bruno, later Pope Leo IX, 
and his death in 1085. Suffice it to say, if you were in his crosshairs, you would know, and William was certainly not in Hildebrand's crosshairs. In fact, Morris writes, quote, In a letter to two French bishops in 1081, Gregory had praised William as a pious ruler who supported the church and governed his subjects with peace and justice. Uh, another quote inside, Although in certain matters he did not comport himself as devoutly as we might hope, He's shown himself more worthy of approbation and honor than other kings. That's from a specific letter written by Gregory, by the way. Now, furthermore, Morris adds, quote, Whatever their views on Gregory, both, that is William and Lanfranc, were, were firm supporters of the reform movement and could hardly have believed that Odo would make a suitable supreme pontiff, end quote. So we see the case building against Odo here. But here's the thing that kind of cracks me up. To be clear, it's not as if William was wholeheartedly against deposing Gregory. He supported him well enough, I guess, but William was beyond needing papal support in really any sense. The question for William was, what would he gain? Well, nothing, actually. In fact, again... He and Lanfranc were supporters of Gregory VII's reforms, largely anyway. So William would gain really nothing out of a new pope. Sure, his half-brother as pope might be beneficial, but I mean, he can barely hold down Normandy and England. Now he's going to be required to head to Rome too? He would lose more in the process, I feel he reckoned anyway. The real reason, though, is actually pretty funny when you think about it. So, Orderic Vitalis says that a number of Norman noblemen in England were amassing their forces quietly. Earl Hugh of Chester was named. Earl Hugh, kind of a big deal. Orderic writes, quote, They resolved to abandon the great estates they possessed in western parts and took an oath to accompany the bishop, that is Odo, to lands beyond the Po, end quote. Now, that's straight from Orderic, just decades after the reign of William. The Po River, mind you, is the major river in the north of Italy. Essentially, Odo's preparing for his own crossing of the Rubicon moment. But William didn't oppose that necessarily. William's problem? William didn't like that Odo was unilaterally taking Englishmen to make his play on Rome. Now, think about it. Those are William's men, not Odo's. William was king, not Odo. In Anglo-Saxon England, Odo may have succeeded, but this wasn't Anglo-Saxon England anymore. And how different a matter of two decades can make. This was feudal England, not Anglo-Saxon England. This was William's England. Nobility no longer had that separation between title and crown, as they did under, say, King Edward. Now that said, Orderic also tells us that when Odo was brought to William, he also gathered his noblemen, that is, he, as in William, gathered his noblemen, not only for armed support, but probably also for marketing purposes. See, what happens when you raise an army, whether for your own self-interests or against me? Yeah, go ahead, see, see what happens. Even my own brother is not safe, right? However, when William ordered the arrest, something else happened that detailed just how powerful and feared Odo of Bayou had become on the island in the previous two decades. Not a single man stepped forward to lay hands on Odo and take him away. The king himself had to stand up and arrest Odo. To be clear, though, Morris writes, quote, William was not condemning a bishop but arresting an earl, end quote. From there, Odo was taken into custody and would spend the next several years confined to a castle in Rouen. Well, don't forget about Robert Curthose, who had just reestablished connection and become very close to Odo. This was devastating to Robert. His uncle was just arrested and sent out of England. This was again in 1082, Within one year, things would only get worse 
for the 25-year-old heir to Normandy. Far, far worse. When William and the boys returned to Normandy the next year in 1083, they found Matilda not quite herself. She'd fallen ill. Nothing serious at first. However, she was soon bedridden, and on November 2nd, 1083, Matilda was dead. Morris writes, quote, This can have been nothing other than a devastating blow for William, for their marriage had clearly been based on love and trust. There is no other way to account for his consistent reliance on her to act as his regent in both England and Normandy. Unlike almost every other 11th century ruler, William had no bastard children and no reported infidelities, at least no credible ones. End quote. There's no eulogy one could write that would accurately and appropriately account for Matilda's addition to William's greatness. I would venture to say that there might not be a Norman England without Matilda's steadfast leadership back in Normandy. Her contributions redefined what a queen should be in much the same way that, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt redefined the role of first lady here in the States. She was quite simply incomparable. There would be incredible female rulers to come. Truly exceptional ladies such as Matilda of Canossa and Eleanor of Aquitaine, for instance. They would forge new paths for women in the Middle Ages, but there is absolutely only one Matilda of Flanders. And she would be buried in Cain in her abbey that she had ordered built alongside William St. Etienne just prior to the initial invasion of England 20 years earlier. Her daughter was a nun there at the time. Morris tells us that her original tombstone with the original epitaph still lies in front of the high altar. It's pretty remarkable. The men of the royal-slash-ducal family were utterly gutted, to say the very least. She quite simply was the glue that kept everything together. William had lost his companion, his life mate, the one person he could always rely on. Robert had lost his chief supporter at home. Sons and daughters lost their mother. And Normandy, it could be said, lost its heart, essentially. Without his uncle, and his mo- and most importantly, his mother, Robert Curthose quickly spiraled out of control. The family unraveled, and William was forced to exile his eldest son, a young man, despite their history, who he had come to rely upon. No one knows why, but come on, the writing's on the wall if you ask me, and I don't necessarily need an exact reason. It seems to make sense. Or Derek does report, though, despite Robert's proven courage and military acumen on the battlefield. Remember, he bested old, the old man uh, just a couple years earlier, knocked him right off his horse. Well, despite overpowering his father publicly, and despite his newfound respect for quelling Northumbria and Scotland, we learn that William still peppered Robert Curthose with public insults, the same as before. Either way, the timing of Robert's exile couldn't be more tied to situations with Odo and Matilda. It seems that Robert had no more friends in court and at home, and had simply had enough. So, Robert Curthose disappears. Not forever. Just for a while, though. And nothing serious happened right away either, as Robert not only had a small number of men this time who fell in with him, but it turns out he left France altogether. We find him popping into another storyline I've alluded to already, one I can't wait to get to with you all. He appears in Italy, actually, a year later, and is recorded as asking for Matilda of Canossa's hand in marriage. She quietly turns him down, though, but what a power couple that would have been. And, and maybe you won't know until we get into it uh, that season of the podcast, but trust me, that would have been a power couple for the ages. I want to talk about that so badly, but it'll fit far better into that specific storyline, so I'll just have to put a pin in it right now. I'm sorry about that. But right, right when Robert left in 1084, William Rufus rose to fill the gap in the hierarchy of su- succession. Morris writes, quote, William made no public moves to disinherit his eldest son or to promote his younger brothers, 
But from 1084, William Rufus assumes Robert's place in the witness lists to royal and ducal char charters, end quote. Now, things were coming to a boil elsewhere, too, that William, now sans both his top regents, let alone his bestie years earlier, don't forget William Fitzosborne, was killed in Flanders. Well, William was forced to pay attention to these other things. See, Denmark, Denmark had a new king. The powerful King Swain Esterson, a man who still held familial connections to the Godwinsons, mind you, had died in 1076. And the crown of the kingdom of Denmark was quickly that year usurped by one of Swain Esterson's bastard sons, one Harold III. However, Harold III died in 1080, just four years later, and one of his half-brothers, a legitimate son of Swain Esterson, a guy who had been looming in the background the entire four years of his uh, uh, half-brother's reign, his name was Canute IV, and he would take the crown in 1080. Not a huge deal, as Denmark largely ignored England during the reign of Harold III, but Canute had a namesake to live up to, didn't he? Canute IV was ambitious and eager to reestablish Danish dominance in the North Sea region, so when rumors of his plans on England came in the year 1085, William, again without his top regents, was forced to prepare. What's more is that Canute IV, as a teenager, became somewhat familiar with the journey and England itself as he was part of the 1069 invasion and as well as the 1075 invasion. In fact, he wasn't just a part of those expeditions, he was one of the top leaders. Now, Williams heard rumors of Danish invasions before, and both of those invasions weren't really invasions at all. So how seriously should he take these rumors? Well, does it add a bit more menace to mention that King Canute IV of Denmark, that same year of 1085, married a girl named Adela, the daughter of Count Robert the Frisian of Flanders. In addition to his probably exaggerated reported 1,000 Danish ships, King Canute IV also received 600 Flemish ships armed to the teeth from his father-in-law. Now remember, Robert the Frisian never really got along too well with William. So there's that in play as well. Now, King William responded by bringing, quote, a larger force of mounted men and infantry from France and Brittany than had ever come to this country, end quote. That was according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles. William of Malmesbury added, quote, the king was scared, end quote. And if the rumors were true, rightly so, this force was so large that the Chronicles admitted that no one knew exactly how to maintain, that is, William's force, no one knew exactly how to maintain such a huge show of arms in the kingdom. So at the advisement of Lanfranc, William ordered the force to be spread around the kingdom and nobility would be tasked with quartering them all. Ah, yes, the beginnings of forced quartering by private citizens in the British tradition. Sorry, my British friends, had to get that one in there. Now, Morris tells us that William also destroyed his coastal lands so that if a Danish fleet did happen to land, they would have a very tough time gaining a foothold. He also released from duty abbots along the eastern and northeastern coastlines due to the region's traditional Danish leanings. William's throwing all he has at this situation. England was tense and holding its breath, no doubt in the winter of 1085 to 1086. But word came while William was holding Christmas court in Gloucester that King Canute IV would wait until the new year to launch. With that in mind, things eased just a bit to enjoy the holidays and get, a few, get to a few things the king already had in mind. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle states the following a passage that lives on in history as one of the more notable passage in the already monumental account. It says, quote, After this, meaning the news around the Christmas court in Gloucester that the Danes were going to wait, 
They say, after this, the king had much thought and deep discussion with his council about the country, how it was occupied and with what sort of people. Then he sent his men over all England into every shire and had them find out how many hundred hides there were in the shire, or what land and cattle the king himself had in the country, or what dues he ought to have in twelve months from the shire. Also he had a record made of how much lands his archbishops had, and his bishops and abbots, and his earls, and, though I relate it at two at great length, what or how much everybody who had, or excuse me, who was occupying land in England, in land or cattle, and how much money it was worth. So very narrowly did he have it investigated that there was no single hide nor yard of land, nor indeed, it is a shame to relate, but it seemed no shame to him to do it, one ox, nor one cow, nor one pig was there left out and not put down in his record. Yeah, many of you already know what we're alluding to here. So basically, William ordered a complete accounting for every single thing of value in the entire kingdom. The year 1086, coming off 1085, which was spent preparing for Danish invasion, was a dismal one for the English as a whole. Its coastlines were preemptively ravaged, its houses and churches were stocked with foreign soldiers, its king irritable and nervous, England was becoming, once again, a steaming kettle. After years of relative prosperity, the English were rising up now and voicing their concerns once more. The Chronicles reports in 1086, widespread disease among the livestock, as well as poor harvests across the kingdoms, storms further ravaging the people. See, a number of villages were reported to catch fire that year, uh, what the Anglo-Saxon uh, puts blame on just overwhelming amounts of lightning, but it probably had something to do with the lightning and the drought mixed. A uh, lot of fire um, and, and devastation. To quote the Chronicles directly, it ends with this heart-wrenching plea. Quote, Things steadily went from bad to worse for everybody. May God Almighty remedy it when it shall be his will. End quote. Now, that ended with an exclamation point, I should add. I can't recall too many places in the entire Anglo-Saxon Chronicles that ends in an exclamation point. The English were suffering once again in horribly large numbers. Morris writes, quote, violence, mass assemblies, the continuing threat of foreign invasion, mercenary troops billeted in every town and city, a nation awaiting nervously on the brink. 1086 was in so many respects a terrible and portentous year. It is no wonder that people associated the king's great survey with God's day of judgment, end quote. Thus, this seemingly boring tax record on its surface masked a far deeper subtext. If William was to rule his kingdom, he had to know his kingdom. William did not know his kingdom like a king should. Between the Christmas court of 1085 and the summer of 1086, William's record keepers were working madly to categorize, organize, and record every minute scrap of value the kingdom had to offer. With the exception of Northumberland and Durham, which had their own separate surveys done, England was combed over from head to toe. Now, putting aside Northumberland and Durham's records, which ultimately did make their way into what we know as the Doomsday Book, there were essentially two surveys done throughout the rest of England. The Little Doomsday and the Great Doomsday. As I said, though, they all made, uh, they all made their way pretty quickly into one gigantic record we know today. And also, as I said, they accounted for everything. The number of households, the size of families, the sizes of plots and estates and farms and towns, even the amounts and sizes of woodland, riverlands, marshes, and meadows. And under such circumstances listed a minute ago, it's no wonder the English, who had a word dom, D-O-M, meaning judgment or doom, gave the record such a negative name, the Doomsday Book. To the English, there was a finality to William's new record of the kingdom, a finality that made it crystal clear that there was no going back. Unlike Canute the Great, 
decades earlier, who had been uh, a Danish Anglophile himself, and who had incorporated so much of the Saxon ways and, and political structures and religious structures and everything, this new kingdom under William the Conqueror was the new norm, no pun intended. In fact, the finality can be seen in how the English remember their two major foreign kings from the 11th century. One was simply the great, while the other expressed a fundamental shift in that they were conquered. Doomsday indeed. A minor but important event occurred in what we today call the village of Old Sarum, a stone's throw to the north of Salisbury. At the time, Old Sarum was an already ancient village having the natural defense of being built upon a tall hill overlooking the beautiful expanse of the Salisbury Plain. And it, if that sounds familiar to you, a simple nine miles almost directly north of Old Sarum is the unimaginably ancient Stonehenge Monument. The village itself had, toward the end of William the Conqueror's reign, a deep ditch surrounding the tall stone walls set up higher on the hillside. It was essentially a Mott and Bailey. Inside Old Sarum's walls was a cozy village. The south-facing main entrance was guarded, but when you made your way inside, there was a wooden church on your left, to your right, wooden homes. However, straight ahead loomed an even larger hilltop keep encircled by a timber wall. In August of 1086, as England was awaiting a joint Danish-Flemish attack led by the formidable King Canute IV and rising up through a pretty horrible year so far, you would have found King William I inside that keep in Old Sarum. In the near future, one of William's cousins, named Osmond, would be the man who headed up the actual consolidation of all the Doomsday Records into the record we know today. And he would do that at a new stone church cathedral built in honor of King Henry I a few decades hence, right there in Old Sarum. It would replace the wooden one to the left as you walked in. And as the Bishop of Salisbury, Osmond would, was also responsible for a newish set of liturgical rites for the Catholic Church in England that would become known as the Sarum Rite, which is interesting because it's yet another piece of evidence that the rift between England and the Catholic Church wasn't some sudden, rash, out-of-nowhere Henry VIII decision. England and the Catholic Church had butted heads for centuries before the Church of England was established, and William the Conqueror's cousin played a key role. Either way, these two major projects earned Osmond sainthood several hundred years later. There, in August of 1086, William had his nobility gathered around him in that keep in Old Sarum, and he explained the situation very clearly, and he demanded a renewed oath of loyalty to his reign. There was a lot going on in 1086, remember. It just goes to show that William was getting very, very nervous. This would become known as the Oath of Salisbury, and it would be the last time William would require such an oath from his English nobleman. Well, as it was, during the same summer of 1086, King Canute IV of Denmark, ready to push toward England with more favorable seas that time of year, was suddenly struck down in a church on July 10th, unbeknownst to William in England for a couple months after. It seems not all of his nobles agreed with his plans and resolved to keep them from happening. Canute IV was now dead and the Danish invasion dissolved. But Count Robert the Frisian of Flanders was still openly hostile to his brother-in-law. And it so happens that his vagabond nephew, Robert Curthose, came moseying back into Northern Europe around that time. By this time, King William, surely the conqueror by now, right? was in his late 50s, 57, 58, around there. No one knows exactly what he looked like. Any portrait you see of him is a lie, merely an artist's reimagining. We've absolutely no way of knowing, actually. We know that military men of the day wore mustaches and, and tended to have short hair, but we can't assume he had those. To be as dominant a figure as William was, we can assume he was an imposing figure of a man, 
But again, we have no way to know for sure. Or Derek called him fat, actually. We know that. We can only imagine what an aged warrior and nobleman looked like based on the habits men like him were known to keep. But, bef but being in your 50s was a remarkable thing in those days, especially for a warrior like William. So when he returned to Normandy, upon hearing that the Count of Flanders didn't ease up on his intentions with the death of King Canute IV, no one really batted an eye anymore. It's kind of sad, really. He had an absolute he absolutely dominated northern Europe for the better part of 3 or 4 decades. He had no equal. But now his presence was merely part of the background. See, the French king, King Philip I, urged the townsfolk of Mantis to needle Normandy's eastern border, and they were mildly successful too in slaving many Normans and even capturing the monastery at Evreux. But according to William of Malmesbury, through the writing of Mark Morris, quote, the cruelest taunt of all came from the lips of King Philip. The King of England lies in Rouen, he allegedly joked, keeping his bed like a woman who just had a baby. William, Malmesbury explains, had been confined to Rouen due to stomach issues, or rather, his severe obesity, end quote. Well, I mean, we all know how that'll turn out. Seriously, William was still William after all. You don't taunt the guy and get away with it. In July of 1087, maybe 58 at the time, he quickly assembled a stout force of Normans, rode into the Vexen next door, and set the fields on fire. Like, like all the fields were on fire. Mantis, the town that first rose against him at the urging of King Philip, Nothing but ashes and bones were left. William the Conqueror was not a man to be taunted, not even an aged, war-weary version of his former self. Just don't do it. Though clearly the victor here, William was next seen, though, suffering horrific abdominal pain, forced to quickly retreat back to Rouen. A few theories emerged as to why, but no one knows really for sure, 100% for sure. One theory that is, was that he was ill previously and the illness simply became too much for him. Another uh, was one that Orderic Vitalis subscribed to is that William suffered from heat exhaustion. However, the leading theory is a, is a horribly painful one, if it's true. The leading theory is this. While riding at the front, William's horse jumped a ditch and upon landing, the pommel of his saddle was thrust deep into his rotund belly, not breaking skin, mind you, rather pushing incredibly deep into his organs. The pain and discomfort William felt were abundantly evident in the records as well. Morris writes, quote, At his own command, William was carried beyond its walls, that is, the walls of Rouen, to the church of St. Gervais, which stood on a hill to the west. There he lingered for the rest of the summer, suffering terrible agonies, but retaining the power of speech. Subquote. I was brought up in arms from childhood, he groaned, and am deeply stained with all the blood I have shed. End both quotes, even Morris's. Now those were Orderic's words placed in William's mouth, so take it with a grain of salt. But as Morris states, quote-unquote, both statements are incontestably true. William spent his remaining days bedridden in absolute 24-hour agony, getting nearly no sleep at all for weeks on end. He knew his time was near, so he, he spent hours upon hours confessing his sins. He ordered certain increments from his personal treasury to be given to Norman churches and the rest of his riches be cast among the poor. He even included funds to rebuild a church he destroyed in neighboring Mantis, outside of Normandy itself. In addition to this, he ordered the release of all political prisoners from Norman custody. These included some names we haven't heard from in quite a while. Earl Morcar, Earl Roger, Seward Barn, and Wolfnoth, King Harold's youngest brother, who Godwin had given away way back in 1051. Odo, however, Odo of Bayou, would need someone to push William to release him, but eventually the king did. 
Now, both William Rufus and Henry were by William's bedside for nearly the duration of the old man's death. Robert Curthos stayed at the court of King Philip I in Paris. William, in the end, kept Robert Curthos as his heir to the Duchy of Normandy. And that's very important. But the fate of England wasn't nearly so cut and dry. William is quoted as saying, quote, I name no man as my heir to the kingdom of England, but entrust it to God, end quote. However, though he never named anyone heir to England, William Rufus did have a letter addressed to Archbishop Lanfranc with a royal seal for Lanfranc to hold a coronation for William Rufus as the new king of England, and I find that very curious. I don't know if it's a counterfeit letter. I, I, I don't know. But to be recorded as saying, I leave no heir, but apparently know exactly that William Rufus had a letter with a royal seal on it saying, go ahead and have a coronation for my son, William Rufus. I, I can't make sense of it, but that's what, that's what the research shows. Now for the first two, or excuse me, for the first time in two months, William slept peacefully on the night of September 8th. It's reported he awoke at sunrise on September 9th, 1087, raised his hands toward the rising sun, and died. Now, within minutes, word traveled that the king was dead, first out of his bedroom, then throughout the church itself. Within a half hour, word was spreading like wildfire through the streets of the city of Rouen, just now waking up. Within the hour, the streets of Rouen were a mess people screaming and running around, preparing their doors and their defenses. No one knew what to expect, but the passing of a man like William, with the only official heir being an exile in the court of the duchy's enemy at the moment, well, it wasn't a good sign at all. Rouen was a flurry of confusion and violence. Also within minutes, William Rufus was notified uh, as soon as the, the word traveled, and he immediately leaped on a horse and rode hard for the coast, trying to escape, trying to escape Normandy altogether before word got out and those loyal to Robert Curthose could seize him. Remember, everybody knew that now Robert Curthose was the new Duke of Normandy. Little did he know that Robert had received word within hours and was actively chasing his little brother, William Rufus, attempting to stop him from leaving. See, the king had actually sent William Rufus and Henry away a day or two earlier, knowing his death was imminent, but Robert back in Paris heard word as well and was actively trying to head William Rufus off during that time. I mean, there's a flurry of activity going on. Within days, the duchy's new duke was still nowhere to be found, though, and no one knew he was actually chasing William Rufus, so the panic only increased back in Rouen. The lack of information was oppressive to the people, of the city, and it nearly collapsed altogether. The entire city about collapsed. The nobility left town to head home to protect their own properties and treasures from the anarchy, the threat of one anyway, and no one was left to defend Normandy's beloved capital. Henry even took his promised 5,000 pounds and left before his father died. The attendance to the late king, in the absence of authority, even snuck in the room that William died in, even snuck in and stole everything. The armor, the weapons, the gold, all of it. By the time a young knight named Herlwin retrieved the body of the conqueror, the room was bare. It was just William's body there. Herlwin was by no means a rich man, but he paid for the king's body to be taken to Cain. However, as Morris puts it, quote, when the boat and its cargo reached Cain, the citizens and clergy came out to meet it with suitable display of reverence, but this too collapsed into confusion when a fire broke out back in the town, causing almost everyone to rush back in order to put it out. End quote. Basically, the remaining monks carried William's corpse through a charred city to the monastery that William ordered built two decades earlier, St. Etienne. Now, Morris recounts the story of William's funeral, calling it the word farcical. See, when the Bishop of Evreux, who was giving the eulogy, 
asked the congregation to forgive the duke his transgressions to hasten the late king's ascension to heaven. Get this. One man stood up and shouted that the land that the church currently resided on was in fact his father's land. This is right there in the middle of the funeral. He loudly demanded that the funeral stop as it was unlawful. William had stolen the land. Therefore, at best, he sh this man should receive compensation, right? The priests present huddled up. It's almost like a, a bad comedy, um, almost like a, a, a Monty Python skit. The priests present huddled up and decided to give the protester some cash for his troubles, which silenced and quelled the, the man. Now, all the while, however, those in attendance held rags and strips of clothing up to their faces for the hours-long service. It was a hot day, too, apparently. It turns out that ventilation wasn't exactly high up on the design plans for St. Etienne at the time, though the building itself was stunning. William, as mentioned, was a rather corpulent individual, and in the hot afternoon, his corpse had visibly swelled in front of their very eyes. They lowered the corpse into the sarcophagus, but quickly realized it had swelled too much to fit. But the priests, well, they pushed on. No, literally, they pushed, they pushed and they pushed until, that's right, you guessed it, William the Conqueror's abdomen burst, spraying all those within range of the explosion. Morris caps the occasion perfectly. Quote, No amount of frankincense and spices could hide the resultant stench, and the clergy therefore raced through the rest of the funeral rites before rushing back to their houses. End quote. And with that, the story of one of the most remarkable figures in human history comes to a sad, ignominious close. What a way to end a 26-episode-long series on the Norman conquest of England. And from this, we move on. We leave priests and noblemen covered in a conqueror's guts, William Rufus narrowly escaping Duke Robert Curthose's chase, Rouen in tatters from panic and confusion, and young Henry counting his piddly 5,000-pound inheritance with absolutely zero future prospects whatsoever while being caught between his two older brothers. The era of William the Conqueror is now officially over. He may be dead, but he will cast the longest shadow in English history, if you ask me. And there are some pretty great shadows in English history. Very few leaders, English or otherwise, even come close to William, or even fewer match or exceed his successes. William's legacy is interesting, to say the least, but suffice it to say that he entered the world of European politics with a bang having to scrape every inch of his ducal authority from the scraps left by his father. And he left the world altogether with a bang. Oh yeah, pun definitely intended. Until next time.